Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. And welcome to the very first inaugural episode of the Eye on the Triangle. We start now with news. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. In headline news, today the U.S. Department of Justice announced that it will reopen the investigation into alleged prisoner abuse by the CIA operatives abroad, constituting a sweeping reversal of former Bush administration policy. Such action will potentially expose employees of the Central Intelligence Agency to indictment and prosecution. As of this afternoon, Attorney General Eric Holder has appointed a special prosecutor to lead the investigation into roughly one dozen cases of reported abuse, some of which detail mock executions, intimidation of suspects with firearms, and threatening to maim prisoners with a power drill in order to extract information. This move may pose a, a political problem for President Obama's policymaking agenda, as he has in past weeks made clear his intention to distance himself from this issue rather than become deeply involved. Over the weekend, generals in Afghanistan expressed concern to the president's special envoy that current troop levels are not sufficient, despite the recent addition of roughly 17,000 soldiers. Taliban insurgents and al-Qaeda factions are posing a growing problem, especially in the southern and eastern reaches of the country. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Admiral Organizations immediately decried the decision, claiming that the governmental assurances of humane treatment are no guarantee. After six weeks, the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office is said to have concluded its investigation into the death of Michael Jackson. According to an unnamed Los Angeles County law enforcement officer, his death has been ruled a homicide. Extremely high levels of the drug propofol, a powerful sedative, were found in his bloodstream. Jackson's doctor, Dr. Conrad Murray, was supposedly treating Jackson for insomnia and administrated the drug. And now in local news, a UNC Chapel Hill student was shot dead by a police officer early Sunday morning following a traffic stop in Archdale, North Carolina. A call to 911 was placed by an unidentified male in his early 20s at approximately 5 a.m., stating that the driver of his car was suicidal. After being pulled over by the police, Benjamin Cortland, Cortland Benjamin Smith, age 21 of Houston, Texas, reportedly became confrontational, resulting in an altercation in which he was shot. The SBI has opened an investigation into the shooting, as it is the routine for such incidents. Smith was a junior majoring in biology and was president of the UNC chapter of the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. The family has declined to comment. State Senator and Attorney R.C. Souls, a Democrat from Columbus County, was involved in an altercation Sunday in which he shot a man trying to invade his home. Witnesses say that Kyle Blackburn, a former client of Souls, kicked in the front door of the senator's house and refused to leave after repeated demands. Blackburn was not seriously injured and taken to the local hospital where he was released today. Souls has declined to comment as the SBI has opened an investigation into the shooting. Souls is also the, sub the subject of another SBI investigation in which he is accused of fondling a minor roughly eight years ago. And now for the weather from the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program. The forecast for Tuesday is for a mostly sunny day with highs near 90 degrees and lows in the upper 60s tonight. Wednesday, mostly sunny, highs in the mid-90s and lows near 70 degrees. Currently, it is raining, at least on this part of the NC State campus, but Raleigh-Durham International Airport is reporting partly cloudy conditions with a temperature right now of 83 degrees. Continuing with a story that just broke this afternoon, the White House announced that it plans on continuing the Bush administration's policy of rendering terror suspects abroad for interrogation. Along with this announcement came assurances that the conditions of the suspects will be carefully monitored as to prevent abuse. The State Department will be responsible for ensuring the safety of the detainees.
Human rights organizations immediately decry the decision, claiming that government assurances of humane treatment are no guarantee. And now we'll switch over to our VIP segment. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. In what direction do you see the university going? Well, I think first you always have to keep in mind that this is a public university that was established in order to create opportunities for students to learn and to serve broadly the state of North Carolina and beyond that. So my job during the time I'm here is to the best of my ability to help the faculty and staff achieve those purposes. Excellent education for students, great service to the people of North Carolina. What about you, Dr. Arden? That's a great question. This is a great university. It's a research extensive university. We have multiple missions. At the end of the day, what higher education is really all about is the discovery of new knowledge and passing that knowledge on to the next generation. And where appropriate, the implementation of that knowledge in our society. And so combining all of those things and implementing those things in the most effective manner that we can with the resources that are available to us is really the challenge. Uh, So it is great to see the joy on people's faces when they do discover new things. And particularly, uh, I just welcomed the new graduate students this morning. And so to see them excited about uh, embarking on their research missions, to see the way that uh, people really, really understand how new knowledge, new information can transform our society. So keeping that as a a fundamental and core ethic in what we do, I think is really a, a very, very high priority. So what do you see as the biggest problem facing the university today? Having enough time to talk with every student that wants to talk with me. I'm kidding, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, the problem, of course, is dealing with the budget cuts that we've confronted this year. And having said that, let me note that all of us within the university and the administration believe that the General Assembly did their utmost to fund appropriately the activities of this campus and other campuses of the university. But there were revenue shortfalls expected in the state, and they dealt with them as they should. But the way in which they dealt with them relative to the university confirms once again that the leadership of this state is devoted to providing high-quality education for its people. So the big challenge for us is to continue to do those things that a university is about within a financial climate that is a bit constrained. I would agree with Chancellor Woodward. This has obviously been a difficult few months coming in and determining how we cut a significant amount out of our budget and go forward. Overall, the people of North Carolina are very, very generous to education and higher education specifically. But as we go forward, I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we utilize the resources that come to us wisely and we getting back to our core mission of discovery and, and education, how we direct those resources most appropriately. That, I think, is the largest challenge facing us over the next year. So obviously you're in your respective positions because you were trusted enough to serve in these positions on an interim basis. What do you plan to do for the university while you're here? I have been in higher education for many years, starting as an assistant professor at this institution many years ago, and then assumed various administrative roles, dean of engineering at one time, academic vice president, and then was chancellor at UNC Charlotte for 16 years. In addition to that, heavily involved in the state in a myriad of ways. So I think I certainly bring experience. I think I understand how universities operate. I certainly embrace what I consider to be the core mission of universities, in particular public universities. So I believe I bring experience. I believe I bring commitment to the position. And I believe I bring uh, a certain humor to the position, (laughs) I would hope anyway. 
Like the Chancellor, I think it's really important when you're particularly in an interim position to really focus on what it is that you can achieve and what you hope to gain in, in your period. I think both the Chancellor and I view that we have a commitment to really keeping this university moving forward. There's a great university on a great trajectory, and I don't think that either of us view that we're simply caretakers. We really have a responsibility to maintain that momentum and make some very wise decisions. So I really view my responsibilities as twofold. Number one is to make good decisions about how we allocate our resources, encourage faculty and staff and students to really focus on the reason that we're here, the incredible transformative powers of higher education. And then I also view my role as to be looking constantly at those processes, both in my office and across the university, will help us to refine the way that we utilize our resources so that we can bring them to the maximum impact. You've talked about moving forward. How do you plan to restore the faith of the students in the administration? Well, I think we have to earn that. It's our responsibility, that is the administration, to earn the trust of all of our constituencies, but especially our students. I think you earn that by being transparent at this level, by being available, by responding to questions, criticisms, and by coming to work every day and remembering why the university exists and go about trying to make this the best place in the world to get an education. And I think we're doing that. I've seen during the two and a half months increased trust, if you will, increased confidence that we are going about our business in the right way. So I'm confident that we'll get past fairly quickly the bumps that led to this decrease in trust over the last several months. Chancellor, I talk about this issue a lot because it is very, very important that we are a community that really has a strong sense of one another and and good communication, that we have a joint and shared mission. I think it is fair to say at this and many universities often a, a bit of a disconnect between faculty or students or administration. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how to bridge those connections, how we communicate about all of the major issues that are facing us, such as the budget reduction is one example, or the many, many issues that face us. I think it's really critically important. I think both the Chancellor and I have histories of being pretty direct and pretty transparent. I think it's something we bring to the administration. We want people to feel that this is our university, faculty, staff, student, administration, and that we're really in the same boat going in the same place together. And I think you can only do that when you have a shared vision of what it is that you're doing and when you understand the decisions at each level there has to be a level of ownership within the university community and so we spend a lot of time thinking about that and thinking how to make sure that we have that shared level of ownership and that is very different to saying well this is the direction we're going and we're going to try and convince people it really is a matter of genuinely listening and integrating people's ideas and concepts and then synthesizing that into the the way you move forward. And we're talking to the provost and the chancellor here, and uh, Seja has a question for the chancellor, and it's your turn. An institution. I think that's absolutely right on. I think on decisions, say, that impact students or impact any particular group, the first step is to consult with that group, present the issue to them, listen to their views, their comments, their suggestions, and then make the decision that reflects the responsibility of these offices and then explain the decision back to the group that most impacted. What I found over the years, if you'll sort of go through that process, even when a constituent group says, gee, that's not exactly what I would have done, the outcome is one that says, okay, I can live with that. I understand, and, and I trust the intention of the person making that 
a lot of universities within the UNC system had wanted to kind of push toward making sure that their students graduated within four years. How, how do you guys plan to make sure that that happens at NC State when we have, you know, fewer classes offered or fewer professors? I don't know. I guess this might be a question more directed at you, Dr. Arden. Sure. And, and it's a great question. And it's something that really concerns me both on a national level as well as NC State. The question of graduation rates, uh, four-year, five-year, six-year, seven-year graduation rates really is critically important. In a lot of ways, it's a hidden cost. We talk about how resources flow from the taxpayers of North Carolina through the system to the university and, and the impacts. And as we've said, the people of North Carolina are very, very generous towards higher education. But the cost to a student and the cost to his or her parents and to society of taking an extra 12 or 24 or 36 months to graduate is is relatively significant. And so a lot of this we really have to pay attention to how do we put things in the students' favor? How do we give them the opportunities to be able to graduate in a timely fashion and get on with their life, with their career, whether that's graduate school, whether it's going into the workplace or otherwise? When we went through the budget reduction process, one of the things that was at the top of our list was trying to protect that interaction, trying to protect the experiences for the student. Now, from memos that the Chancellor and I have sent out, you'll see that we've, we've lost a lot of seats. We've tried to make up for that by having some larger sections, which you could argue is, is not quite as good as the smaller sections, but to still make the opportunities available to the students to be able to graduate in a timely fashion. It's not an easy task. It's hard to cut $50 million out of a budget and not have an impact on the opportunities for our students. So I hope that when people look at it from the outside, they'll realize that we're we're really trying to make decisions that protect those opportunities, but also realize as we go forward and as the economy begins to become better, that application of new resources to enhance the abilities of students to graduate in a timely fashion is actually money well worth spent for the taxpayers, for the parents, and the future of the students. Let me comment on that as well. I, I believe that though we have lost seats, Every student who comes to NC State can graduate on time. I think there is an enhanced responsibility on behalf of the administration and students to better plan the program of study. That is, rather than wait perhaps late in the registration process to register, especially if you know that you need to get one or two courses in order to continue toward a four-year graduation, you need to register early. So I would encourage the students to pay more attention, perhaps a little earlier, about putting their schedule together. And then the administration will do their utmost to work with the students in helping plan appropriately. And I know some other schools had talked about the possibility of penalizing students if they didn't graduate in four years, you know, whether it was paying out-of-state tuition, even if they were in-state. But I mean, would that really be effective, especially for people who switch majors and that kind of thing? Or is you know, I don't, uh, my personal impression, you notice I've always been letting the chancellor answer first. You know, that's <laughs> obviously the wise thing for a provost to do. But I'll leap in on this one. I feel that penalizing students who don't graduate uh, in a certain amount of time is really not the direction that we need to go. The direction that we need to go is making sure that those opportunities are available to our students and making sure that we look big picture. If we look, for example, at the issue of student advice, I know that when we went through the budget cuts, one of the things that were of concern to the student body were cuts that we were having to make 
in student advising. We tried to be responsive to that. We went back, looked at our advising. We were able to uh, save some of those positions back. But it really made me think more broadly about student advising across campus. Do we really applying the resources that we have in advising as wisely as we could? I mean, it's well known that a lot of students come in and will switch majors multiple times. Are there ways that we can work more closely with our students and apply our resources in such a way that they are advised more effectively as they go through the process, are able to plan their academic careers more effectively, graduate in a more timely fashion? Uh, so the application of resources to open those opportunities for our students is really the direction I would like to go in as opposed to penalising students who don't graduate in a certain period of time. News and Observer recently did a piece on the growth rate of administrators, those with provost title or vice provost title, and how the rate of those have increased faster than the growth rate of students. How do you answer the critics that say those should be the first ones cut? Well, the first step is to fire the provost. <laughs> no, I think that is a legitimate concern. In fact, it's a trend across the country, and it's a trend that I do think is damaging long term. Obviously, it subjects you to criticism, loss of trust among those that we depend on for supporting us, the public, the General Assembly. We have a serious, serious effort underway on this campus to look at the administrative positions, the responsibilities that we've assigned to various people, and to reduce the administrative tasks take place within North Carolina State. The way you cut positions is you look at the responsibilities, identify why those responsibilities are there, and then change the responsibilities, eliminate the task. Once you do that, you eliminate positions. And I think you'll you'll see some substantial progress over the next year. But a legitimate concern and one that the campuses must respond to and North Carolina State is responding. This is a trend that has been seen across all major universities. NC State or even universities within the UNC system are, are not unique. I think it is incumbent upon us in academic administration to step back and look why has this happened. I think both the chance and I have a very open view on this. We really need to look critically at why this has happened and see what proportion of that growth is justified and what perhaps is not justified and look at ways, once again, that we can direct and redirect our, our resources in the most appropriate way. We don't feel threatened at all by, by looking at this question, looking at it critically. And as the Chancellor has said, we have already have major initiatives on campus to look at ways that we can reduce or streamline the administrative burdens that are on us and ways that we can refine the way that we handle that and if that allows us to redirect resources otherwise then that would be uh, that would be excellent you're listening to eye on the triangle on wknc 88.1 eye on the triangle's vip talking to people that matter and now eye on the triangle's vip segment is back with the chancellor and the provost Dr. Arden, you seem to have a vision for how you want the university to go. I mean, do you plan at all to maybe apply for the provost position? Or? He just fired me. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Sajra, I, I, I have to be honest, I think it's too early to say I, I have loved my time as Dean of the College of Veterinary Medicine over the last five years. I'm enjoying this position. I'm enjoying learning more about all the elements of this university. I have, as I pointed out a few times before, worked at multiple different institutes uh, around this country and other countries, and I will tell you that I am more excited to work here than at any other place I have worked. I get up in the morning, I love coming to work, I love 
interacting with the faculty, the staff and the students. So I am uh, excited about the opportunities for this university. But beyond that, I have to give a little bit more time and, and, and see how things evolve. But either way, I think that whoever is in the provost's office, I think this university will continue on, a, on an excellent trajectory. We've got some great things ahead for us. Seems like Dr. Woodward's just counting down the days. Yeah, I have enjoyed my time here, but I was really enjoying retirement. So I look forward to going back to the lake, joining my wife and my two dogs. But I must say that this has been a thrilling time to be at North Carolina State for all the reasons you and the other students know. This is a superb institution. My task is, again, to do this job effectively while I'm here, whether it's three months or whether it's a year. And the search process will probably see a permanent, to the extent any of these appointments are permanent, Chancellor identified early next spring, maybe March, but in all probability, it will be June or July before the next person comes in. When that happens, I'll go back to the lake. I look forward to that. But it'll be, a, it'll be an enjoyable and I hope productive time during the months that I'm at the North Carolina State. Chancellor, when you return back to the lake, what do you want the students, the faculty and staff to remember about you? I want them to remember that I was not a caretaker. That is not the job of this office. And if people say, well, gee, Woodward didn't rock the boat, he didn't mess up, he didn't try things, he didn't work at fixing some of the issues that have raised, then I will have failed. And I, quite frankly, don't intend to fail. I'm not a caretaker. I was appointed as chancellor and charged by President Bowles with exercising all of the responsibilities that go with that office. And I fully intend to do that. Can you describe the phone call when President Bowles called you and asked you to take the job? Well, it happened to be on Sunday, and of course I had been following the news here. Jim Oblinger, an old friend, of course, again, I had deep affection for the institution and was involved in the state. For example, I served on the UNC Tomorrow Commission. I was one of the initial appointees to the Lottery Commission and so forth. So I I had really kept up with what was happening here. But it was a Sunday afternoon, and when I saw that it was Erskine, I had a feeling that I knew why he was calling me. And I told him that I would talk with my wife, Martha, and would call him back and let him know. And we sat down and talked, and she and I decided that this was something that we could not fail to do. Also talked with the chairman of the board, Lieutenant Governor Jordan, who is an old friend of mine as well. He was on the board of trustees at UNC Charlotte for eight years. I knew of his great devotion to North Carolina State. I talked with him. We talked with our children because we knew that it would disrupt our planned retirement life. But the bottom line was it was a family decision. It was a decision that recognized that we had certain responsibilities, certain obligations to this wonderful state. And it's one that today I believe was absolutely the right decision. You both talked about interacting with students and the importance of that. If a student were to ask you what your day-to-day duties are, what would you say? (laughs) I was asked that one time by a group of students. I still remember this. This was in Charlotte sitting on the steps of the chancellor's house there. And I decided I would explain my day by sort of going over my calendar for the day. And it was one of those days that I started with a breakfast and had meetings in the morning, had a lunch, and then went to a uh, reception and dinner that night. And when I got through, one of the students said, well, it sounds to me as if all you do is eat. (laughs) So maybe that is my typical day. (laughs) A bit busier than that. And no, I don't eat all the time 
though it is something that one would have to worry about in this <laughs> job. So it ranges from discussions with students, which I thoroughly enjoy, to participating in, in the events to welcome students back to the campus. What a great deal of fun that was. And then, you know, periodically I'll get a complaint about something and deal with that. And then we're always looking long-term. Provost and I have talked extensively today about issues that are of long-term importance to the campus. And it's important that we do that because, again, neither of these jobs are viewed by us as caretaking jobs. I think my day is very similar to the Chancellor's. Uh, <laughs> lots of meetings, lots of emails, a few phone calls. As I look at the day, what I would love for my job to evolve into if I stayed in the provost position or whoever is in the provost position is to spend a lot more of the day in discussions with faculty, with staff, with students, really open exchanges. That's what excites me. Not to say that the committee meetings don't, <laughs> but that's what really energizes me, is to speak with people who are absolutely passionate about what they're doing, about their research, or about teaching, or about how they develop their careers, or how they engage the community. Our speaker, our uh, summer reading speaker, Greg Mortensen, had some great stats last night that he said the moment 40% of college students say that they want to go out and make the world a better place up from 19% about 10 years ago. That really energizes me. The whole concept that higher education has a transformative element both personally and societally. So if I could change my day a little bit I'd have a little bit more time for those kinds of interactions and a little bit less on the process oriented meetings that we have to go through. But it's a it's an Evolution. I think sometimes you have to focus on the nuts and bolts parts of the job and then you savor the other parts when they come along. I guess every chancellor has something that they're remembered for, like what Adam was talking about. A lot of people knew Chancellor Oblinger as more of a fundraiser. Marianne Fox is more of a person that interacted with students. And this is kind of something that Jim Sresnick and I were discussing. How do you achieve a balance between fundraising for the university, but also being out there with the student body and the faculty and the staff? Oh, I think you have to do all of it. Part of this, this job is friend-making and fundraising. And if I didn't do that, then I would be failing this institution. But at the same time, it's important that those within the campus, especially students, trust the individuals that have these, these responsibilities. And in order to achieve that trust, first you have to do a good job, but you, you have to be known. You have to participate in opportunities for students to meet you, develop opinions about you. That means that you've got to go to events where students are. And opportunities like this are very good. It gives us a chance to speak broadly to the student population. So again, I think you do all of those things. Chancellor, recently you said that you kind of set three priorities, and one was redeveloping our alumni relations system to build a new chancellor's mansion and to do the tally campaign. Why did you kind of pick those three? Well, actually, my comments were broader. Um, what, what I did was to say I am not a caretaker chancellor. It's essential that we continue to grow the research capabilities at this campus in order to fulfill our obligations to the people of North Carolina in the years ahead, and we'll make investments there. The second thing I talked about was we all know that the governmental support for public educations is becoming more strained which means then that we have to look for other avenues of support and one of those important avenues, private fundraising. This campus has done a pretty good job in the past 
but not as good a job as some other large public universities. So we need to professionalize our fundraising. And as I looked at the campus and identified the physical facilities that were needed for such a major campus, New Student Union Building is right on top. There has been work to do, work toward achieving that New Student Union Building to date. And my goal is to move that project to a point to where we can begin to pursue external approvals for the project with the Board of Governors. We really need a new Chancellor's House. A lot of folks don't understand what a Chancellor's House is about. The Chancellor and his or her family will live there, but that's a small role for the House. It is a place of friend-making, cultivation of supporters, a place where students come and can interact with the administration in a pleasant setting. Shortly after I got to Charlotte in 1989, the Board of Trustees built a new Chancellor's House. We lived in it for 16 years. My goal, which we achieved before I left, was to build a new Chancellor's House on campus, and that was completed just as I retired. But in my 16 years as Chancellor, we had over 500 events. So it is a project that I am confident we will move this year as well. Dr. Arden, what would you say your three goals for the university academically are? As the Chancellor has said, I think one of the things that we need to look at is our research infrastructure. It is very clear that we need to expand that research infrastructure and that we need to focus on returning some of the faculty positions that we have lost. We lost 117 faculty positions in this last budget cut. So returning those faculty positions to the colleges, to the classrooms, to the research labs, and giving the faculty the facilities infrastructure that they need to be successful, I think to me is very, very important. Another higher priority is to really look at the way we apply our resources to student engagement. We talked a little bit about advising. I think that's just one element. How can we really bring to bear our resources in a way that allow students to design their course of study, to graduate on time, to change their lives so that they're able to really contribute maximally to the benefit of society and and to their own futures. That, for me, is a very, very high priority. To look at raising the profile of the university consistently, and that is integrally linked with the way resources flow to the university. I've said that the people of North Carolina are extraordinarily generous to higher education, and they are, but there's no doubt that we need to diversify our funding portfolio in as much as we need to expand our advancement and development operations. We need to expand our research operations, potentially some earned income operations, so that we can bring additional resources to the university, bring additional resources to bear on the fundamental academic mission. Much of that relates to the way you are perceived by your stakeholders. There's an old adage that resources flow where value is perceived. And I sincerely believe this is a great university that brings great value to its community and beyond. What we really need to do is make sure that we emphasize those elements of the university. We emphasize the new research that we're doing. We emphasize the implementation, the real-world implementation that we're doing through curricular engagement or extension activities, that we emphasize the innovative instructional techniques that we're deploying throughout the university so that we, we highlight the value that we bring to our own students, to the people of North Carolina and beyond, and then we link that to the way that resources flow to allow us to, to do our mission. Do either of you have any last statements or anything that you want to get out to the student body? Well, I hope everyone will join me in celebrating the win that we're going to have when we play South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'd just like to thank you for having us here today. This yes, has been a great discussion. And you know, in my position as dean, I did a monthly podcast about the college that was available to students. And so sitting in the studio reminds me a little bit of that. And you know, I think that we need to look at less traditional communication modalities, getting back to this concept of shared identity and shared vision. And so I think it's incumbent upon us, the administration, to look at the ways, the tools and techniques that we use to communicate with each other. Hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. Hey, what's up everyone out there in Radio Land? My name is Adam Kincaid, and I'm the local music director here at 88.1 WKNC Raleigh. It is my pleasure to be presenting you with the local music segment of Eye on the Triangle. Every single week, we'll be touching on different topics, including local music news, new local music here on WKNC, as well as any other information we can provide you with. If you would like to provide us with updates regarding local music information, feel free to send me an email at localmusic at wknc.org. And now for some local music news. And without a doubt, one of the biggest things going on this week in local music is the release of the compilation album Here Here, a joint effort between Flying Tiger Studios, Terpsichore Records, and WKNC 88.1. Mikey Peros has been on the WKNC side of things as far as his compilation is concerned, and I asked him a couple questions regarding the release. Here Here is a local music compilation that is a joint effort between Flying Tiger Sound Studio, Terpsichore Records, and WKNC. And it features 17 brand new songs from awesome local bands, including The Rosebuds, Love Language, Lonnie Walker, The Old Ceremony, a bunch more. We're having a CD release show at the Cat's Cradle featuring annuals, The Never, Hammer No More of the Fingers, and Birds of Avalon. And the cool thing is you get a copy of Here Here with the price of admission. So you go and see those four bands and you get a copy of the compilation too. There is a page on the WKNC.org website. It's WKNC.org slash here, here. And that's H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E, WKNC.org slash here, here. And there's plenty of information on the page, including some trailer videos, photos from the making of the compilation, and all the information you need to know about here, here. I also asked DJ Mikey P a little bit about the thought process behind the creation of Here Here. So Flying Tiger Sound Studios was willing to record all these songs for free as a way to kind of promote themselves since they're, they're a new studio. They just opened up a couple months ago. So they wanted to get the local community, local music community in to see how, how good of a studio it is. And uh, Terpscore Records was talking to Flying Tiger they want to do a local music compilation. And when they told me that, I knew that WKNC had to join join the efforts. It's it's a perfect compliment to all of our WKNC's mission statement, or at least my view of their mission statement, is to kind of con- cultivate the local music community. Um, we have local beer, local band night. We have local lunch. We have the local beat. So this is kind of a perfect compliment for, for those for, for all that, all the efforts we do to support the local music community. The CD release party is at the Cat's Cradle Saturday, August 29th, and the show starts at 8.30 p.m. Annuals, The Never, Hammer No More The Fingers, and Birds of Avalon are all playing, and a copy of Here Here is included with the admission price. For more information, as well as a trailer video and tickets, go to wknc.org slash here here. That's H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E.
Also, don't forget about Local Beer, Local Band, which is every Thursday night at Tiernan Oak Irish Pub in downtown Raleigh. Every single Thursday, WKNC and Tiernan Oak team up with local breweries to provide specials on local beers and provide audiences with live music from their favorite local bands. This week will be the Huguenots and the Stars Explode. In addition, don't forget to tune in to the local lunch every single weekday, Monday through Friday from noon to 1 p.m., where WKNC plays the finest music from North Carolina and the Triangle. Also, don't forget The Local Beat, a show every single Friday from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., where we host the finest local bands from North Carolina and the Triangle area. This week, we'll have local band V. Lee, who will make their premiere showing on WKNC. Also, we'll have Regina Hexaphone coming in to talk about her show Saturday, August 29th at Durham Central Park for the Coalition to Unchained Dogs. She'll be playing alongside Super Chunk, the Kingsman, and Ray Nortino. And also, in the final hour of the show, we will have local favorites Midtown Dickens as they come in to talk about their brand new album, Lanterns, that is to be released Saturday as well. They'll be playing new tracks live in the studio. So be sure to tune in for the local beat. That's just going to about do it for me. Again, my name is Adam Kincaid, the local music director here at 88.1 WKNC. Thanks for listening to my segment on Eye of the Triangle. Community Canvas on Eye on the Triangle. Your local arts news. And my name is Mick, and for the inaugural Community Canvas, we decided to focus on the National Museum of Art at Duke University. They are featuring the Picasso and the Allure of Language all fall. And for that, Sarah Schroth, the senior curator at Nasher Art Museum, Nasher Museum of Art, rather, sat down with us to talk about Picasso, Nasher, and all things Duke. And we're going to go ahead and fire that up. I'm joined by Sarah Schroth, the senior curator at Nasher Art Museum over in Durham that is connected to Duke University. Do you want to explain a little bit about the, the relationship there, Sarah, between Nasher and Duke University? Oh, sure. Well, Nasher is Duke University's museum. So it's the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. It's called the Nasher because Mr. Ray Nasher, Mr. Raymond Nasher of Dallas, went to Duke, graduated in 1943, captain of the tennis team. And he made a fortune. He went to Dallas, made a fortune in real estate, and always was embarrassed that Duke didn't have a museum like uh, the other schools, Harvard, Yale, etc. So he's been harping on it since 1943, literally. And finally, everything, all the stars aligned, and uh, we got him on board. He got the piece of property that he wanted on campus, which was the last great piece of property. Right. He's a real estate guy. You know, he right. knew, right? And he put it on the top of this hill, and then we hired uh, a black cloak architect, which we call them like Frank Lloyd Wright or a black cloak. So anybody is like one of those top tier architects. So we hired um, Rafael Vignoli. So he really wanted to do this right. He wanted, he would only do it right. He would, you know, and, and the other thing that's really interesting to me about him is that he would only give half because he wanted Duke to pay the other half. And that was really important to him because he wanted Duke to be invested in it, you know, as a unit, you know, be, so it did happen. And so it's been happening since 2005. We opened October 2005. And are you the first senior curator? Yes, I'm the first senior curator. And and what was your background and your sort of introduction to Nasher? I mean, how did you get hooked up with that? I've been at Duke for 12 years now. And I came to Duke to do two things, to build the new museum, 
with the Nashers. I knew the Nashers in Texas. I did an internship when I was in graduate school at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, which is right next to Dallas, you know. And the Nashers are the major patrons, really, of that area. So, you know, you got to know them and everything. And I, they're, they're wonderful people, just a great family. And so I wanted to build the new museum, and I wanted to do a Spanish show that, that came out of my dissertation, El Greco to Velasquez, and that happened. So both of the things have happened, you know, sort of like that's right. why I came, and they've both happened. And now we're in the, you know, post-El Greco phase. And so in the post-El Greco phase, you guys have, I'm sure, several things lined up, but the most immediate one is this Picasso exhibit. It's called Picasso and the Allure of Language. Right. So I think everyone knows Picasso because of Cubism. Everyone knows that he was born in Spain and moved to France. Sort of an expatriate of a different country. We all know our American expatriates. But this focuses on something a little different about Picasso. Is that right? Yes. It's focusing on Picasso's relationship with words, language, and writers. And this has never been done before. It's a brand new interpretation. Never been looked at before. I mean, you know, usually, you know, we sort of think about uh, you know, Picasso, his mistresses or his animals or his masks or his bulls, the minotaur, you know. But this looks solely at Picasso from one lens, and that's the lens of the writers that he knew and his own poetry. I mean, people don't know, but Picasso wrote 340 poems. Yeah, I was going to say he dabbled, but that sounds like more than dabbled. No, no, he more than dabbled. He really was serious. Gertrude Stein told him to stop, that he, you know, that his that his his painting was poetry. So quit with the you know quit with the writing poetry. You know, just paint. But but he was serious. And and if you look, you start looking at his work, you can see there are letters everywhere. There's either like newspapers or um, letters hanging out. You know, in the Cubist pieces or in lots of things. So it's a new approach, new approach. And the, and the pull, you know, that language is sort of. The allure of language is this is this way of a gravitational pull bringing us into Picasso in another way. So I guess that's sort of what you said already. Uh, you can see it in his art. But what, what was his relationship with Gertrude Stein? She was a big supporter of his, right? Oh, absolutely. So he moves to Paris the first time in 1900. He's 19 years old. We have one piece from that period, a cafe scene. It's really cool. Very cool. It's very sloppy and modernist, really nice. Sort of his first French, first thing he did. Yeah, and it looks a little bit like Toulouse-Lautrec and, you know, other people. It doesn't look like Picasso. You would never know. 1900, he's, he's 19. And uh, the first person he meets is Max Jacob, the poet, French poet. And Jacob taught him French. And... They shared, they shared an apartment, and then he went back to Spain, and then he came back in 1904. And uh, in that year, he met Gertrude and Leo Stein, and they just connected. She understood what he was doing, and he understood what she was doing. And they influenced each other in various ways, but she was also his major patron in the years until he became sort of famous. And every Thursday, I think evening, she would have a group of people at her house, like a salon, you know, and Picasso met everybody there, Apollinaire, Andre Salmon, all the writers, Americans that came and intellectuals and musicians, so, etc. So when we think about why Picasso moved to France, moved to Paris, it's sort of the way we think of Brooklyn for music, 
but on a much bigger level. I mean, he knew that if he moved to Paris, then he would meet the Gertrude Steins or whoever it was, and that could be a good start to his career. Is, is that pretty much the story behind that? Yeah. Yeah. His father was a painter, and his father taught him. And his father was a traditionalist. And he wanted, he rebelled. He wanted to rebel against the parents and against the whole culture, the whole Spanish culture he needed to get out of because it was, it's, it's to this day a little bit repressive. You know, it's, uh, you know, Spain at one time conquered the entire world. You know, the Spanish empire was bigger than Rome's and they've never forgotten that even though they've lost the empire. And so, you know, they, they have a certain way. I mean, like religiosity is so key, you know, to everything. So he wonder bell against that and he wanted to be an avant-gardist, you know, so the art center was Paris. Unquestionably. Unquestionably. Everybody was there. I mean, so let's, the exhibit itself, what are the run dates? We open August 20th and we close January 3rd. So basically it's the fall semester. You know, the, the entire fall semester we're up. We're having a little show that is organized in conjunction with it called Picasso in Africa, which looks at Picasso's collection of African art and the Nasher's collection of African art and the similarities between the two. And some French popular press about French colonialism and the fact that, you know, Picasso was an anarchist and, you know, all this is that's that's going on, you know, also. And then right now, at the same time, we have the show called Beyond Beauty. Uh, photography from the Duke University Special Collections, which is a phenomenal show, and people have been blown away because people don't know what the library has. And, I mean, you name it. You name a photographer, he's in there, or she. I mean, it's amazing. So that show's going on till October, and then after that we have Warhol's Polaroids, which is going to be a great show. It's going to be cool, so you can come to see Picasso, this new interpretation, you can think about his African art and then go in and see Warhol. Right. So it's the two giants, yeah. really, you know, the 20th century <laughs> together. All right. Well, very cool stuff. Sarah Schroth, senior curator at the National Museum of Art at Duke University. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to Picasso and the allure of language. You're welcome. You're welcome. For more information, you can visit nasher.duke.edu slash Picasso. Thanks again to Sarah Schroth. Next up is our student of the week, Leanne Gonsalves, who interned in Honduras this summer with the State Department and was there during the political unrest. Listen to some of her experiences that she shared with us on Eye on the Triangle. Student of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. Talking with Wolfpackers that are leading the pack. Hi, my name is Leanne Gonsalves. I'm a senior in Biological Sciences and International Studies. I'm from Cary, North Carolina. And this summer, I spent uh, 10 weeks as an intern in the State Department, or in the embassy, rather, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It was a pretty interesting internship, to say the least, because if y'all keep up with the news or keep up with what's going on in the region, you know that there was a coup. There's actually still a coup going on. They're still trying to resolve it. What started out as an internship in a consular section doing paperwork, um, just enjoying being in a different country, turned into something a little bit more exciting. Um, I got to Honduras in early June and was 
set up in the consular section. The consular section of any embassy, whether it be just a consulate or a full embassy, it deals with three things, non-immigrant and immigrant visas, and then American citizen services. So if you're traveling abroad in a country and you lose your passport, you get robbed, you end up in the hospital, you end up in jail, there are people at the embassy who you can talk with, who can provide you with services, who can be there as support, things like that. I really enjoyed living in Tegucigalpa as a downtown urban center in Honduras. Very different, of course, from any urban center that we get in the U.S. Very different from Raleigh, of course, but it seemed, it, it was pretty interesting. We would, you know, go out to restaurants in the evenings and try to go out, of course, always being safe. It was a bit odd to not be able to walk around, go for runs on your own. It was very strongly frowned upon by the embassy. So we essentially would have to get rides everywhere, either from other foreign service officers who had cars or from motor pool. Now, when we got there... On the political side of things, I worked in the consular section, but on the political side, things were getting a little bit heated because President Manuel Zelaya, or Mel as everybody calls him, he was hosting this vote on June 28th that was supposed to take place, and it was called the Fourth Urn. And in essence, if the Honduran people voted uh, voted for its um, passing, it would give President Zelaya the power to assemble a committee to amend the Constitution which would essentially give him the power, should he choose, to stay in power longer than the mandated one term. Presidents in Honduras have a limit of one term. And with presidential elections coming up in November, Mel Zelaya was proving to be a little bit difficult to oust. It looked like he was going to want to stay in power a little bit longer than he should. So things were getting a little heated as we got closer and closer to the June 28th vote. The Supreme Court in Honduras and the Congress were both declaring the vote illegal, saying it couldn't go through, couldn't take place. Meanwhile, President Zelaya and his supporters were saying that it would, in fact, take place. Long story short, June 28th, the vote did not go through as planned. President Zelaya was awoken in the wee hours of the morning and escorted or forcibly removed, depending on whose side you heard. Um, he was taken out in his pajamas, put on a military plane, and flown to Costa Rica, and essentially ousted. It was the first coup in a Latin American country since the Cold War. I remember the day as being woken up at 8.30 by my roommate pounding on my door, telling me that there's been a coup. President Zelaya has been thrown out and sent to Costa Rica, and we were getting calls from the embassy, people telling us to stay indoors, not leave our apartment under any circumstances essentially stay put and wait until further notice and so we're turning on the tv in the and the trying to access the uh international news agencies bbc cnn trying to figure out what's going on and we knew it was a big deal when the bbc actually acknowledged that we existed that uh there was something going on in honduras uh we were calling our parents back in the states for news because we kept losing internet and power and water actually as the day went on, we kept getting details from our friends, junior officers or foreign service officers who had been called into work. We as interns were not called into work that day. The consular section was busy answering phone calls. There were literally hundreds of phone calls coming in from American citizens across the country and in the United States, wondering what was going on, asking after loved ones, um, wondering if and when the U.S. Embassy was going to evacuate them. Um, so... The people in the consular section spent most of the day placating American citizens, uh, letting them know the information that we had, letting them know that, no, we were not evacuating to be careful, stay away from roadblocks, things like that. It was also interesting just being on the diplomatic side of things, 
given that most of the other embassies did clear out of Tegucigalpa fairly immediately after the coup as international governments refused to recognize the interim government. One of the ways you refuse to recognize a government is to pull your ambassador out and most of the countries, uh, the consulates or the embassies in the EU pulled their ambassadors out. A lot of Latin American countries did the same thing, uh, but we were, we were still there and had no intentions of going anywhere. It was a pretty interesting summer. I would definitely do it again. Uh, while I was there, I, applied, I took the Foreign Service test, which, again, would let me be a member of the Diplomatic Corps. If I am lucky enough to pass through this first time around, I'm hoping that will be something that I can jump in and do right after graduation. I graduate in May. But if anybody's at all interested in, it, in th diplomacy, understanding foreign policy, understanding how the U.S. interacts with its neighbors, Working or interning with the State Department is definitely something I would recommend. Um, they have fantastic internships around, in embassies around the world, anywhere where the U.S. is. So it's a really great opportunity for anybody who's interested in doing so, and I would recommend it to everybody. It was a great summer. Sound Bites on Eye on the Triangle. Opinions from around the NC State campus. I'm Caitlin, here with Eye on the Triangle Sound Bites, on-the-street interviews with students and others in our community to see what NC State is talking about. This week's question is, how has the construction on Hillsborough Street affected you? Uh, I'm Thomas Campbell, I'm a communication major. Uh, the construction's been kind of a pain because when it's a one-way road, it takes a long time to get through. So you guys been cutting through and taking Western instead. My name is Stevie Wisnett. I'm a senior in biochemistry. Since the Hillsborough Street construction has begun, I pretty much avoid Hillsborough Street unless I'm going to campus anyway. If I need to go to the bookstore, if I want to eat at Mitch's, I just wait until I already need to go to campus. I don't make a special trip because it's too hard to navigate and park. William Cawley, history. So far since the school year started, it hasn't really come into play considering that most of what I have to do is on campus and I don't find myself going across the street very much. But on the weekends, it does become problematic considering that going to church means I have to go downtown. It's passing through Hillsborough Street because there's not a lot of good uh, of other good avenues. I want to avoid it until I'm taking longer routes to places going around it, you know, using Western Boulevard or going down Wade Avenue and sort of bypassing it. I'm Dylan Selinger. I'm a major in business management with a concentration on entrepreneurial studies. As a resident of uh, Chamberlain Street, I live on Hillsborough and the construction has definitely impacted um, most of the residents, I would say, of the Hillsborough Street area. I can tell it's impacted businesses. Uh, I think it definitely makes a big appearance difference um, to incoming freshmen. I think it'll be very pleasant for everyone when the construction's over. Jubal Young, Mechanical Engineering. It hadn't really slowed me down. My wife drops me off. I'm Perry and I'm with University Targeted Staffing Housekeeping. The construction doesn't really affect us as far as getting around or getting to the buildings, but it does affect us in our cleaning as um, we, when we, we have to leave the windows open in the upstairs bathroom and all the um, dust and stuff from the construction comes through the windows and leaves a terrible mess every day. This has been Sound Bites on WKNC's Eye on the Triangle. Thank you very much for listening to the inaugural edition of Eye of the Triangle, courtesy of WKNC 88.1 FM out of Raleigh. Encore broadcast can be heard at www.wknc.org slash blog. You can send your comments and suggestions to publicaffairs at wknc.org. Also, the blog can be used to nominate community members for the student profiles.